you're listening to a message from Kaleo Phoenix, a church plant in downtown Phoenix that creates space for people to practice the ways of Jesus together. Good evening, Kaleo. Good to see you all. Glad we are together. Thanks for scooting up, making it feel intimate. It's a, it's a good feeling. Um, as Aaron's mentioned a couple times, which I'll continue to clarify for us and give us some direction on, uh, over the next 11 weeks, which essentially is leading up to the season of Advent, so it'll get us to the season of Advent that starts at the end of November, what we'll be doing is we'll be preaching alongside selected homilies that were given by the Archbishop Oscar Romero, taken from his book, The Violence of Love, which is... Uh, something I'll talk about as well as we go here too. So the title is a bit provocative, but we'll find out why and we'll get into that. What, what we're gonna be doing is the, the quotes and excerpts that we choose from this book and from the selected homilies, they correlate with the scripture, scripture passage that he was preaching from that follows the church calendar. So it's easy because they're all dated to find the, the passage or passages that he was preaching from. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna take Oscar Romero and we're gonna take the scripture and then we're gonna like hold his prophetic words in the middle of all of that and see what that might mean uh, as a guiding light for Kaleo as we create space to practice the ways of Jesus together. So we're gonna follow a bit of our own interpretive dynamic of what we think it means to, to be people uh, together. We're gonna look at how Oscar Romero spoke that into a world that I think sometimes can feel foreign to us here in Phoenix, but also seems to be like this prophetic thread that, that we can learn a lot from as well. So before we dive into the passages and the quotes, which I'm really, I'm personally really excited about, at least today I'm excited about it. So I'm excited to get there. I wanna share a little bit more uh, about Oscar Romero with you. Like I want you to get a little bit of an image of him and we'll grow that out as we go. And I want you to know who he is and a little bit about him. And then I also want you to know a little bit about the, the inspiration behind this book. So here first is the intro short to Oscar Romero. On March 24th, 1980, the Archbishop of El Salvador, Oscar Romero, was gunned down by a member of the government-backed militia while he was giving mass. Romero was a threat to the status quo in a horrific time of violence against the impoverished majority of El Salvador. His faith and commitment to the impressed, empowered the people to risk their lives and stand up courageously to the injustice that was being perpetrated by the ruling landover, landowners and even by the institutional church that was in bed with money and power. And so he was speaking against that. And so it was over a three-year span that we find this book here where he was named the, the archbishop. And so a man by the name of James Brockman compiled and translated Romero's homilies, speeches, and reflective writings of the three years leading up to his assassination. And it kind of serves as a, as a bit of a voice, I guess. Um, of what it might look like to speak against hatred and oppression and what it might look like to stand in the way of love and compassion uh, when, when living in a challenging time. Uh, in the context of El Salvador, it was a bit more violent than uh, maybe the 
direct violence we're experiencing here, but I think it gives us a vision for what it might look like for this vision of Christianity even that Romero would describe as a a love and compassion that exists even in the face of violent suffering. And so he's just building on the, the life and language of Jesus, right? But he's situating it in a time and a culture which maybe many of us are unfamiliar with and we'll learn more about at the same time. And it will inspire us as it kind of moves its way along history and in different cultures and contexts. Uh, in the foreword to this book, The Violence of Love, uh, the, the mystic and teacher Henry Nouwen states this. He says, as I was reading, I felt as if Romero's spirit was drawing me closer and closer to the truth. That is the true relationship with God. And I don't know, like if you pick this up, I think you'll experience the same thing. Aaron and I have experienced the same thing as we've been reading through it, is there's something about the spirit of Romero that's drawn us to the way of Jesus also. Like it, it enlightens what this might look like. And so his legacy is preserved in this book that spans these three years leading up to his tragic death. And maybe a summary would be like his voice reaches out today proclaiming still the power of love and the justice of God needed and present in the world. And so I think you'll see that this is another way for us to envision what it looks like to create space, to practice the ways of Jesus together as the multi-ethnic family of God. We'll learn a bit from a, a unique Salvadorian priest who preaches these messages to people who need to hear something that offers the hope of Jesus to their lives. And we'll merge all of those things together. So we're going to find ourselves today in a favorite passage of mine, Isaiah 2, 1 through 5. Okay, so if you want to turn there or whatever you can, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to see if we might figure out how to love and live like Jesus as we read this passage and think about Oscar Romero. Okay, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, here we are present with you today. Thank you for being with us As we gather, thank you for the opportunity to sing songs, to pray together, to be with one another, Lord. And I pray that above all else, we would just make room in our hearts and in our lives and in our minds to receive what it is you have for us today. As individuals, as a community, whatever that might look like, God, would you give us uh, just a, a posture of humility to receive from you. Would you remind us that we are loved, that your love takes action in the world, and you invite us to participate in that love? Would you give me your words to speak, words that are for you and from you, that make much of you, so that we might know you more intimately, Lord. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. On November 27th, 1977, which happened to be the first Sunday in the season of Advent that year, Oscar Romero preached from Isaiah 2, 1 through 5. And a quote from this homily, which is just a short sermon, is the impetus for our 11 weeks and the inspiration for the title of the book, The Violence of Love. So that was the quote that was spinning around uh, on that slideshow. So I'm going to read that for us too. Here, here's what Romero said, again, in a sermon on November 27, 1977. He said, we have never preached violence except the violence of love, which left Christ nailed to a cross. The violence that we must each do to ourselves to overcome our selfishness and such cruel inequalities among us. The violence we preach is not the violence of the sword, 
the violence of hatred. It is the violence of love, of brotherhood, the violence that wills to beat weapons into sickles for work. A riveting quote, right? So why do you think Romero uses this language of violence? I think it even just like strikes us at first when we hear that. We're kind of like, you know, I'm not sure what to do with the violence of love, right? But he claims that the, the violent cross, which I think is something we tend to forget as being the most violent of violent actions, right? Jesus' experience to the cross and on the cross, he says, is an embodiment of the violence of love that Jesus endures, which happens to be, in his context, the very opposite type of violence that his people are enduring, right? So there's a certain kind of violence that the Salvadorian people were experiencing, and then there's a certain kind of redeeming violence of love that Jesus experienced. And so he's doing this like prophetic rhetorical flip, if you will, and he's reclaiming the language of the oppressor or the actions of the oppressor who are enacting violence upon the people. And he says, actually, there's a work of restoration happening here. There's another way that Jesus is calling people to perceive what it is that he's been up to in the world and what he's inviting people to do and how it might situate what it is we're experiencing in the world. And I think it happens to align as well with the prophet Isaiah. So here's how Isaiah 2, 1 through 5 reads. This is a vision that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which you could kind of just think of as the saw concerning the people of God. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be the highest of all, the most important place on earth. It will be raised above the other hills, and people from all over the world will stream there to worship. People from many nations will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob's God. There he will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For the Lord's teaching will go out from Zion. His word will go out from Jerusalem. The Lord will mediate between nations and will settle international disputes. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will no longer fight against nation nor train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. What a passage, right? What a, what a way, like, again, you imagine this in the context of, of a majority of people who are suffering violence from the powerful government regime. The majority of those people are impoverished. They have no power, essentially, to push back. And here's a passage from Isaiah initiating this unique peace that both Jesus and Romero echoed in their words and embodied in their witness. Or there's this juxtaposition happening as Isaiah says this, right? There's war happening. There's instruments for war among us. But he says there's going to be a peace that is different than that because everyone will show up at this mountain and there the Lord will do his work. And so both Jesus and Romero preach this radical invitation to lay down our weapons, or our weaponizing, even if you will, and love our enemies. 
And each claimed that to pursue this type of peace is to be challenged to look at all of creation as loved by God. So there's this love that's at the forefront of this whole vision being set forth by Isaiah, by Jesus, by Romero. You'll see the link happening consistently between them. So just as Jesus called his followers to love those who persecuted them, Romero called on his listeners to practice nonviolence, even when their government terrorized them with night raids and kidnappings and barbaric violence as they sought to resist what was being done to them. And to love like this is, in Romero's estimation, the violence of love. And I think that issues a strong challenge for us. So before we get to that, Isaiah does this whole thing where he riffs about a metaphorical mountain as an image of God's longstanding intention for all creation. Right? Did you catch all that mountain language, right? It's almost like he's specifically saying that the, the future work is going to be where God restores all that has gone wrong. And that will happen in a place that you won't be able to miss because it will be the mountain that is above all other mountains. It will be the place where all the nations are gathered together. And it will be the location in which you worship because everything that was making harm or killing one another is now cultivating goodness. That's what's happening there, right? So listen to this language of the mountain again. In the last days... Right, which is really, again, this image that Isaiah is saying, like this is what God's gonna set out to do. But as the prophet Isaiah, he's hoping on some level that this might be true, right? That this might come to fruition. He's saying this is what God intends, though. He says the mountain of the Lord's house will be the highest of all, the most important place on earth. It will be raised above the other hills and people from all over the world will stream there to worship. People from many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, the house of Jacob's God. There he will teach us his ways and we will walk in his paths for the Lord's teaching will go out from Zion. His word will go out from Jerusalem. Augustine wrote of this passage, which I think you're probably already starting to see it. So you're as smart as Augustine anyway, right? The central place they are all coming to is who? Is Christ. Jesus is at the center because he's equally related to all. He is your refuge mountain. That's who Jesus is, right? Isaiah is saying it's gonna be Jesus. And now Augustine's reading back through Jesus to Isaiah and saying, of course, Jesus was the mountain. Jesus is the mountain. Jesus even shows us the violence of love on a mountain, but before the violence of love is fleshed out in the crucifixion up on that hill that Jesus walks up onto, Jesus actually implies in his life and ministry that he's always been the mountain of worship, of healing, and of restoration. I'm gonna show you how though, okay? You're probably like, Jesus is the mountain? What are you talking about, right? He's tied up in all of this. Right, it's this mountain of Jesus. It's this one where all are welcomed to be reconciled together, which is like the very thing that Jesus is inviting everybody to. Many nations will be there. It's as if, right, Isaiah is saying, let the multi-ethnic family, pe multi family of God come to the mountain, the people of many nations. 
and learn from the Lord to walk in his ways and his paths, who teaches us to walk in the ways and the paths of the Lord. Jesus, right? So like you can begin to see it now, right? That God's work is always seeking to create a space to practice the ways and paths of Jesus with all the nations of the world as the family of God. That's like the whole thing that God's been doing all along, and now it's embodied in Jesus. And so this image that Jesus is the mountain, I haven't even gotten to the part yet. I'm excited about this part. But the image is fleshed out in the ministry of Jesus in this really specific moment. And it'll hit you when I tell you. So Jesus encounters this woman on the outskirts of a village at a well. And this woman is a Samaritan. And so she is of the enemy nation, right? And she is the cultural other. And here they meet together. And here's how the encounter unfolds right after Jesus has named to her everything about her. And she has this epiphany of like, oh my gosh. And she says in John 4, 19, sir, you must be a prophet, Right, which is just in the line of Isaiah anyway. She says, so tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship, while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worshiped? Remember, anytime you hear mount, it's a mountain. It's short for a mountain, okay? Right? Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming. Indeed, it is here now when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Isn't that what Isaiah said was going to happen? We were going to come to the mountain and worship in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. What way? The way that Jesus shows us, right? The paths that Jesus shows us that say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. For God is spirit, Jesus says. Boom, Trinity, right? So those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. You see how he's building all of this together, that Jesus is the mountain. So to worship in spirit and truth is at the heart of actually Romero's preaching and priesthood because it brings for us the words and life of Jesus into a whole different light that we hadn't seen, embodied among the oppressive regime of El Salvador in the 70s and 80s. And you're like, what? I didn't know anything about El Salvador in the 70s and 80s. And all of this ends in the death of this man, Oscar Romero. And after Oscar Romero's death, the violence continues on for the next nine years and some 60,000 people are murdered. So this thing that Isaiah was saying, that Jesus was saying, that Romero is saying, is this whole thread all the way through that has been what God intends for God's people all along anyway. So Jesus, again, if we're just still in the space of a mountain, in his most famous mountain scenario gives a sermon on top of one in which he hearkens his followers to remember their identity. What does he say on the top of that mountain? He says, you are a city on a hill. You see, Jesus standing on a mountain 
Right, did you catch what Isaiah said, right? Isaiah's like, this is the mountain that's been, this is the whole thing that God's gonna do in the future. And now Jesus is standing on this mountain and there's these people in front of him who have no hope. They're like, what are we gonna do? How are we gonna do it? What is happening in this world? An oppressive regime is upon us. What's the way to live? And he says, well, let me tell you who you are first. You are a city on a hill. And Jesus goes on then in the Sermon on the Mount, which is short for mountain, right, to teach what? To teach his ways and invite us to walk in his path, which is exactly what Isaiah was saying. A path of what, though? At the core of that teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, the whole hinge point, the hardest thing that Jesus has to say is this is the path, nonviolent enemy love. What? How does he say that to him? To us. And like an exposed mountain, the goodness of God is a vulnerable witness to the path of love. You're not protected from the elements on top of the mountain. Your vulnerability is for all to see. And on top of that mountain is the Lord who shows us his path of love, even as he endures the violence of love. So now Isaiah says in verse four, the Lord will mediate between nations and will settle international disputes. And we're like, please, Lord. (laughs) He says they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their Spears into pruning hooks. Nation will no longer fight against nation nor train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Like you can feel the prophetic vigor of Isaiah here. The Lord will mediate a weapon-free restoration. That's the hope that we're being launched toward. And as the early African church father Tertullian said of this passage, he said, Christ did not come as powerful in war, but in peace. And it's scandalous, right? They're like, what? He goes on to say this. He says that as the result of this, they beat their swords into plowshares and their spears, which are a kind of hunting instrument, into pruning hooks. He says, that is to say, Minds that once were fierce and cruel are changed by the gospel into good dispositions that produce good fruit. That's our hope and our prayer. That's what we must be praying for one another and for those who do one another harm is that the gospel would be the kind that actually transforms the minds and lives of those who are fierce and cruel and that they would be turned instead into those who produce good fruit. The sword becomes a garden tool. Like the the image is so powerful that we would wield garden tools, right? Will we do that then? Will we turn our weapons into garden tools producing good fruit? And I think the challenge of that becomes then what are our weapons? Because there's one element of the systemic weapons that exist, and then there's the weapons that we wield in our own relationships, in our own lives, in our own cities, in our own places too. Will we let those be transformed, beaten down, crushed into something usable for producing good fruit? 
And you could say, the call laid forth in this passage from Isaiah is one of conversion. Conversion is an interesting word and an interesting concept in our 2022 evangelical, post-evangelical, we're not sure what we believe or why we believe it or where we're going or why we're going their world. But in the witness of Jesus, and I think what Isaiah's getting at and what Romero's gonna get at, conversion is to be converted to the loving way of Jesus. That's like, that's it. And this was what's so compelling about Romero to me, is that he so loved his enemies that he consistently preached that they be converted to the way of loving like Jesus. You see, what's interesting is that they actually listened to his sermons. They were radio broadcasts around El Salvador, or at least most of the time they were, unless it was blocked up or bombed or you know cut down. But for the most part, people were able to listen because he's the archbishop of the whole area. So they're listening to his sermons. And he's consistently and routinely speaking of conversion. But think of it like this. The people present in the pews of their church make up people who are being oppressed, hurt. Literally, people are being murdered in their midst, kidnapped. Churches are being stolen. And he says to them, also be converted. Which is like, hold on, what? Following the ambush murder of a priest who had been driving. And then a month later, a dozen people were murdered that belonged to that priest's parish. And then that church was desecrated in the town of Aguilares. The people took the church back eventually. They resisted and entered in, and Romero preached to the people this. He said, we will be firm in defending our rights, but with a great love in our hearts. Because when we defend ourselves with love, we are also seeking sinners' conversion. That is the Christian's vengeance. Whoa. The plea for conversion was consistent as Romero preached this nonviolent gospel. He knew that if his people who were continually being beaten down let their hearts get hard and didn't stand up for their rights with a great love, that they too would suffer the same way their enemies were suffering against them. And he preached this nonviolent gospel, this conversion, inviting all to lay down their weapons for the entirety of his time as the archbishop. About three years after that moment when his friend was murdered and that church was taken over and those dozen people were murdered, three years later, on Sunday, March 23rd, 1980, Keeping track of the dates, that's a day before he was assassinated. On that Sunday, Romero preached the weekly homily. And at the end, he delivered his most urgent plea yet for peace. 
He implored the country's armed forces, the young soldiers, to disobey their superior's orders and to refrain from killing innocent citizens. Here's what he said. He said, brothers, he knows they're listening, right? Brothers, you are killing your fellow countrymen. No soldier has to obey in order to kill. It is time to regain your conscience. In the name of God, in the name of the suffering people, I implore you, I beg you, I order you, stop the repression. According to one of the legal experts of Romero, who he had been having these meetings with at this time, to ask a military officer to directly disobey the orders of his superior was a criminal defense in El Salvador. And then, a day later, at six in the evening of Monday, March 24th, Romero was conducting mass at the chapel of the hospital where he lived. And he said in his sermon that day, God's reign is already present on earth in mystery. When the Lord comes, it will be brought to perfection, which is what Isaiah was saying too. He says, that is the hope that inspires Christians. And remember, he's talking to Christians who didn't have many reasons for hope at that time. He says, we know that every effort to better society, especially when injustice and sin are so ingrained, is an effort that God blesses, that God wants, that God demands of us. And then minutes later, a single bullet was fired from the back of the chapel. It sped through the chapel air past the Carmelite nuns that were in attendance, and it found its mark hitting Romero in the chest. And here the violence of oppression and the violence of love collided, and I think it leads to a question where up to this point in time, maybe in my sermonizing, we're kind of like, yeah, okay. But then it's like, is the way of love even possible? Is this worth it? Can it bring change? And still the words of Isaiah ring out, come, Let us walk in the light of the Lord. Still the words of Jesus ring out. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. So how do we then walk in the light of the Lord and love our enemies when it seems that injustice continues to win out? How did Romero and the people of El Salvador do it? And all the other places that we can say, how did they do it? And how do we keep doing it? Because it's still happening. Athanasius, another African church father of the fourth century, reflects on this passage from Isaiah and he asks, who is the one who has done this? Or who is the one who has joined together in peace people who once hated one another? except for the beloved son of the father, the savior of all, Jesus Christ, who because of his own love suffered all things for our salvation. 
He says, for from ages past, the peace he would initiate was promised. The hope to keep trying this thing is in the promise that Jesus will come again and peace will reign and the multi-ethnic family of God will be joined together. This peace is promised. And until then, what do we do? We walk in the light as the light of Jesus. Jesus, who is also the mountain. Listen to the words, obviously guided by the words of Isaiah that that Jesus preached from that mountain. He says, you are the light of the world, like a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Keep shining is what Jesus is saying. And so a closing remark from Romero and me a little bit. Romero says this. He said, here I would like to engrave this great idea on each one's heart. Christianity is not a collection of truths to be, believe, to be believed or laws to be obeyed of prohibitions. That makes it very distasteful. Christianity is a person, one who loved us so much, one who calls for our love. Christianity is Christ. Like that, we can get around that, right? And therein lies, though, the heartache and the hope, right? A love both realized and yet to be realized, The tension of the gospel of Jesus has unfolded and it's unfolding. It's saved and it's saving. It's converted and it's converting. It's healed and it's healing. It's both and the whole way through. And so we hold on with hope because the spirit anointed Jesus to bring good news to the poor, to release captives, to give sight to the blind and set the oppressed free. He has done that and he still is and he will continue to do so. So may we then as his followers learn his ways and join his paths, as Isaiah said. And may we become as Isaiah and Jesus and Romero proclaim us to be the nonviolent, many-nationed family of God who embodies the love of Jesus. That's the hope. That's what I'm signed up for anyway. That's what I'm into. And so I pray that that's what we learn in the midst of trying to follow somebody who followed Jesus. And we keep going the way of love. And so here's what I want to do. I just want to let God say that to you. Maybe God's already saying it to you through me, through this time together, but I want God to say that to you. So let's just be still for a few moments in the presence of the Spirit of God and say, to God, what do you want me to know and what do you want me to do? And I'll pray us out.
Jesus, may we remember your words, take them to heart. And will we hear him say you to us one more time? You are the light of the world, like a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, let it be so with us. Would we receive our identity as a city on a hill, as a light of the world? That is who we are. That's who you tell us we are. And I pray that in the tension of trying to navigate what it looks like to be that in the world, that we would, in fact, follow your ways, Jesus. Let our good deeds shine, if you will, for all to see so that you might be known and you might continue the healing work that you've already initiated, that you've already done, and that you'll continue to do. May we come to know that at the core of who you are is love. Would we receive that and would we walk in that way? And would it not just be some platitude, some soft word that means good fuzzies or that we love tacos, but that it would be this revolutionary kind of love, God, that takes what was meant for harm or that is broken and turns it into something healed and for good that cultivates good fruit. I pray that we would be people who wield garden tools. To your glory. We love you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. For more resources or information about Kaleo, please visit our website at kaleophx.com or follow us on social media. If this episode has been helpful to you, let us know or share it with someone you know.